0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we wanted to get this in uh, at the beginning of the program here. A comment responding to Thursday's program. Uh, we had a program on the Sandhill Crane, some of the best known and loved birds in the United States. This was on the occasion of Bridgeland Audubon Society's um, Sandhill Crane Festival in Cache Valley. Uh, so we talked with Sandhill Crane expert Paul Tebble and with filmmaker Cindy Stilwell, whose film Mating for Life... Uh, sees in Sandhill Cranes a metaphor for human transformation. It's a meditation on nature and art and poses questions about our need for connection and solitude. Very interesting conversation. Here's a response from Hillary in Logan, who says, Please let listeners know that there is a resident mated pair of cranes that remain year-round at Willow Park Zoo in Logan. The male has an injured wing, so each year when the female thinks it's time to migrate, she flies over the fence and waits for him. He can't manage to follow, so she returns. This happens repeatedly until she realizes that they're not going to migrate. And uh, Hillary adds also the Bridgeland Audubon Society has donated a copy of Cindy Stillwell's Sandhill Crane film, Mating for Life, to the Logan Public Library. So anyone who wants to see it again or check it out for the first time will have that opportunity. I'll add uh, here, just parenthetically, that uh, you can find out more at cindystillwell.com, where you can get that film. And uh, you can go to Utah Division of Wildlife uh, Resources uh, website uh, to find out more about sandhill cranes. There are other places you can see them in Utah. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Readers of physical books leave traces. Marginalia, slips of paper, fingerprints, highlighting, inscriptions. All books have histories. And libraries are not just collections of books and databases, but a medium of long-distance communication with other writers and readers. Letter to a Future Lover is a collection of uh, several dozen b- brief pieces written by Anter Monson in response to Library Ephemera, with library defined broadly, ranging from university institutions to friend shelves, from a seed library to a KGB prison library, and addressed to readers past, present, and future. And in these essays, Ander Monson reflects on the human need to catalog, reserve, and annotate. The private and public pleasures of reading, the nature of libraries, and how the self can be formed through reading and writing. Andrew Monson edits the magazine Diagram and New Michigan Press. He's author of Vanishing Point, Not a Memoir. That was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. He's author of several other books. He lives in Tucson, teaches at the University of Arizona. Andrew Monson, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks a lot, Tom. Thanks for having me.
0: Appreciate you uh, being with us. So uh, what, what prompted you to write Letter to a Future Lover? What, was, what were you responding to here?
1: Well, you know, I mean, my last book, Vanishing Point, was an attempt to sort of integrate the printed book, the codex, um, and the website. So it was a kind of experiment in, tr- in trying to fuse digital and print technologies. And as part of the, uh, part of the you know, conversations I had with people around that book, the question I kept getting was well, you know. I mean, what about the future of the novel? What about the death of the book? What do you think about the ebook? And I mean, to be honest, I've never been much of a fan of the ebook. I mean, I'm interested in digital reading and I'm interested in websites and things like that. But it sort of pressed me to think about then. Well, what do I love about the printed book? About the feel of a book in your hands that I'm missing um, when I read an ebook. And I do read an ebook. You know, I mean, I read ebooks to, um, for teaching. It's convenient for, um, you know, certainly they're portable. I can keep 20,000 books on my phone if I need to, and they're searchable, which is really nice. But I realized as I sort of spent time in libraries, kind of like looking at books and paying attention to books, that the thing that I missed most about the printed book, one that I don't get from a PDF or from an EPUB, was that sense of history. The, I mean, the sense of, you know, by using a printed book, we leave our traces on them, it. I mean, whether it's just sort of like finger oils, whether it's coffee stains, or whether it's the kind of marks that we make. Um, and then I so I was spending this time in libraries, and the thing that I would run across, I, occasionally I would run across something that was in the book that you know you would never find in the PDF or you would never find in the EPUB. Um, you know, marginalia was one of the big ones, or things that people stuck in there like canceled checks. Um, inscriptions, book plates, and things like that, and I started to get to thinking about like that a book isn 't just it isn 't just a thing that you know you sort of write and publish or pick up in a bookstore but it 's a way of speaking to someone far in the future, as anyone knows if they 've picked up a book that was written fifty or a hundred or a hundred fifty years ago and been moved by what they by what they ran into there that you can still you know you can still read these things so so um long in the future so then I started writing these little essays I was moved by this uh, in particular there was this one uh, this one book it was a uh, from the railroad uh, American railroad operators Association and all it was was a it was a book that um, was the program and the sort of minutes from some meeting of theirs in 1923 or something like that and I read it and I was just amazed by I mean how how quickly that sort of still spoke to me and how the voices there were still speaking. And I was moved to then write back in it. So I started writing these little essays and then I would publish them back into the books where I found the thing that I would respond to. So I'd print them up either, you know, I'd handwrite them in some cases or I'd print them up uh, on a six by nine card and publish them back into the books as a letter for a future lover to find sometime in the future.
0: And the, uh, the limited edition of this book is, is not bound, right? It's a, no, it's a I mean, box was, full of these I mean, the cards. The original
1: edition is, you know, these, these sort of short pieces that are they're in, in addition of one to be read by somebody who finds them. Mm-hmm. And so then the, when we were going to put this together as a book, so I always thought, this, I thought of this as a book project, I, we had talked with my publisher about this. We were going to do just a box, the cards uncollected, unordered, uh, I mean, unbound, except, you know, they'd be in a box, so they'd have to be kept somehow. And they really liked that idea, but when we actually came to producing it, it was just too expensive to do. And my publisher, which is Grey Wolf Press, their whole ethos when it comes to printing and binding books is they need to do everything in in America, or at least in North America. And when we looked into how much that would cost to get Mm -hmm. done, you pretty much needed to get it done overseas in order to do it. And then the other problem with that is we talked to librarians, and librarians weren't that excited about the possibility of getting a book that could you know, you can just take a page out and take home. And they would have to put it in special collections which would reduce most people's ability to actually find the thing. So the trade off was that we decided that we would just do a hardcover book and then I was, then, then they then they said I could I could do a limited edition. So I did two sort of limited editions that come in the box and are loose leaf pages and they're designed so that the reader I mean all readers automatically interact with books and participate in reading. Um, I mean, there's actually been studies that have shown that we are participating in the things that we read. Um, and so but my idea was, like, well, then the reader could also write a page and put in the book. The reader could take one of these cards out and give it to someone else or put it in a book they loved. Or there's a couple of them that are just blank cards meant for the reader actually to like write on and to do with what they will. So the limited edition is, yeah, this uncollected uh, and sort of... Sort of expanding into the future edition because I keep writing these cards and those who bought the limited edition, which was offered via Kickstarter, um, you know keep getting cards in the mail every, every time I keep writing these and I'm just working on one um, you know inspired by this book that was like a manual for Dungeons and Dragons that I found. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been working on an essay so that'll go out to the 150 people that bought the limited edition probably in a week or so.
0: What if we talk a bit about the, uh, the the essay labeled A? And this is page three of the bound edition. Mm-hmm. If 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 you just have the limited edition, it's uh, you know you, you'd have to search for it here. Um, you're responding to uh, a book that was checked out and and then until you found it, had not been checked out again for some sixty eight years.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that, I mean, and that's that was like this is one of the things I really miss about most libraries. You know, don't they used to have those. Cards in the back where you would have at least the date that it would be due, and then some. You know, some libraries you'd actually have like the handwritten name of the person who had checked it out, um, and, and that, I was, was amazed by that because then you could also interact with the person who would who you know who was going to read it next. You could see who had read it before you, and sometimes you might actually know those people. Um, but this one is from a book called "Books and Libraries in Wartime" by Pierce Butler. That I ran across, and it still had this date due card in the back that it said it last been checked out, or last been due from check, being checked out on February seventeenth, nineteen forty-seven. And I don't know if you're like me, and you, when you when you see something like that, your immediate reaction is to to kind of wonder at that time, and also to be amazed that the library has kept the book in spite of it not being circulated, perhaps, or the whole time. But then you're also just, you know, you see that and you want to, it's like an orphan book that you want to, or I wanted to anyway. I immediately want to check that out and at least get it back in the system, remind, you know, Pierce Butler or other readers of Pierce Butler, who probably aren't many now, that, you know, someone cares about this, and, and I cared about it, and I checked it out. And then the essay that I wrote sort of reflects on the kind of time that can go by between the writing of a book and a reading of a book which you know geologically is like nothing at all sixty you know sixty eight years or so
0: and you're right in this, uh, years are threats that libraries oppose, even if eventually it's necessary to weed the stacks. We can't keep everything forever. So years are threats libraries oppose
1: yeah, I, I mean, and that to me like the, the library is one of the bastions, if not the central bastion of civilization. I mean that's where I mean that's the only reason that we have knowledge in often cases is because people collected books and held on to them for years, and lent them out and made them available to scholars and to readers. And that's what libraries are to me. Well, I mean, it's one of the many things that libraries are. I mean, they're not just a museum for, you know, for books where people go to find them. They also offer a lot in terms of like, services and you know, computer access and things like that. But for me, the, a library is a way of communicating and preserving knowledge. They're the ones that, are, you know, that kept Pierce Butler here. Like, I'm sure if you tried to find this Pierce Butler book, I'm sure it's not in print. You might be able to find it. You can probably find it online, like a used copy via, like, a Libris or A Books or something like that. But other than that, if not for this library, this book would be would probably be disappeared, except for a few collections.
0: If you just joined us, we're talking with Ander Monson. Uh, he is author of several books, the most recent of which is Letter to a Future Lover. And uh, this started, as he mentioned earlier in the program, with him publishing these little essays back into the books that uh, he's responding to. And he's talking about what one reviewer called the secret lives of books, the ways we communicate with each other um, purposely or or not purposely uh, through the uh, things that are written in the books, the marginalia, the errata, the the ephemera. Uh, So this this book is not only about uh, books, but the way we communicate with each other. Permanence and Impermanence, Pleasures of Reading, The Nature of Libraries. You're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. By the way, uh, Ander Monson, a great Twitter handle, uh, at Anger Monsoon. So that's the way you can get a, get a hold of Ander Monson by Twitter. Uh, here's an email from Steve in uh, Beaver Dam, Arizona. Uh, he says, You've probably noticed that ebook readers have annotation and highlighting functions, uh, and as an inveterate highlighter and margin note writer in old fashioned physical books, I'm grateful for these capabilities. What I emphatically do not like, however, is that Amazon's Kindle system, which works on all tablet computers, as far as I know, indicates that in every ebook where other readers have highlighted, I think that it works this way. If three or more readers have highlighted a passage, then that passage will be indicated for all readers of the book. For one thing, this is an unwelcome reminder that Big Brother is watching. For another, it's an unsubtle way of dictating to me as a reader which passages deserve my special attention. I will make that decision for myself, if you please. At the very least, we ought to be able to shut that function off. That's uh, Steve. What are your general reaction, Andrew Monson? You know,
1: me? I mean, that's actually one of the things that it— is interesting to me I mean I don't I also sort of would prefer to read a book in solitude and to be able to kind of make my own way through it and not to be you know I sort of dictated to which things are important um, except that I mean I, you know I also love buying these like used copies and as a teacher one thing that you see you know when you buy a copy of a book there's a lot of people that you know highlight books in college and sell them back and I have a particular fondness for you know for reading, uh, you know, for reading other people's sort of like misguided marginalia or things that—that's what you found. That's 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 the, that's the <laughs> sentence that you thought was important. In, you know, in this whole poem or in this whole paragraph. Um. So I, I mean, I love the possibility of that, but I agree that I'm. I, you know, I really don't want to necessarily be communicating. You know, I, I guess I want it to be at my behest. If I want to communicate with another reader, I would like to do that. Uh, not to be sort of like forced into that. And that's one of the fears I have with Amazon. Having said that, I mean, I I would be, I'm also curious to know, like, what are the passages that everyone seems to think is important? Um, And I like, I mean, I like the possibility of, you know, seeing that. At the same time, I'm more interested in the passages that one particular person uh, who read this book 20 years ago or, you know, last year or last week thinks is important. There's one, I mean, there's one essay in here where I actually read a copy of this Albert Goldbarth novel, really strange novel, called Different Fleshes, and it's out of print. But the only version that I, that I could find of it was from a friend of mine, Alison Hawthorne Deming. Um, so she lent it to me, and when I was reading it, it had a lot of kind of her marginalia in there, and she's a writer. She's a very, a very fine writer and a colleague. So my experience of reading the book was like reading her reading the book, and she wrote these you know these notes sort of 35 years ago and they're kind of impenetrable like you know I couldn't make much of that but I love that encounter of like reading one particular person whereas if you're encountering you know 10,000 people's ideas about what is interesting that's not I don't that's not intimate and intimacy is sort of what I'm looking for in reading and my writing experience
0: Let's uh, go to uh, our first caller. It's uh, Edward in uh, Salt Lake City. Edward, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh,
1: Thanks. I'm just going to mention to your author, I used to live in Southeast Asia about 15 years ago, and there was a whole bootleg book market where they would take uh, English-language classics or current books, even John Grisham, and reproduce them really quick. And then uh, these would be books that they picked up from backpacker travelers. And then they tell them. And I was once reading one of them, and I think it might have been uh, the Quiet Prison, the Quiet American. At any rate, it had a stamp from Ceylon, reproduced, which wasn't even a country and hadn't been a country for years and years at the time I was reading that. It's it sort of an example what your is talking about in terms of marginalia and stamps and handwriting that's really, really old.
0: Okay, thanks, yeah, Edward. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, some traffic passing there, but I think we caught uh, caught the gist of your uh, your interesting experience there. All
2: right,
0: thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Andrew Monson, that's that's quite interesting. He he found uh, he found uh, what you're talking about in 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 the book in the bootleg copies there in Southeast Asia.
1: Yeah, that's a great story. I hadn't known about that. That you know, then they wouldn't just they would reproduce like more than. You know, I mean, you reproduce things that weren't part of the book proper, but, you know, were sort of added at some previous time. Another great reason to, you know, to run across, this is also, like, why I love buying, you know, when I buy used books, I used to really try to avoid buying, like, ex-library editions. So I had this you know, this feeling that I needed, you know, I needed to find the pristine copy, and the pristine copy is the best copy. But after about six years of doing this, like, I really started to seek them out for that reason, and to try to find things that have you know have, have like a history to them, and it's great that in this you know in this particular instance that that history was then sort of like repeated and preserved.
0: Are, do you have your book with you? I do. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you just read the last paragraph in that, that uh, essay that we referenced uh, uh, to the A A-A piece. Yes. Yeah.
1: Sure. In this place of preservation, it's not hard to be reminded of those we've lost or fear we might those who were due but never came. A librarian's conversation, a spine-cracked paperback, a human hair, a whiff of sandalwood in air. Each of these might disappear for a year or more and fold the past into the present and pound a nail through the intersection. Patron, in this way, we're young again. We remember. We are alive. Hmm.
0: Uh, you you said earlier in response to Steve's uh, email, uh, you know there there are possibilities with you know the electronic book. What what you're going for is that that intimate communication, and I wonder if is is that possible with with the electronic. We we can converge and be a collective with the electronic, but do we lose something with if we move completely to the to the electronic book?
1: I think we do. Uh, I, I mean, I don't I don't know that it is possible to have. A real intimate experience with a PDF, um, or I mean, or if it is, I can't imagine it. I mean, you know, I love my PDFs, and I love again, I love my digital technology. And one of the things that I love about online and about uh, you know reading things on screens is that they are, I mean, they are unbound in a way, and they sort of find their way, um, you know, across borders much more easily. They're harder to, you know, to censor. Um, they're harder. Sometimes they're, sometimes they're easier to find. Um, I remember, like, you know, I used to, I, I loved reading Canadian poetry, but this was about 15 years ago, and it was really difficult to buy almost any Canadian poetry book except for, you know, like Margaret Atwood, like the really well known ones that were printed in America. Um, but then eventually, once kind of Amazon came online, you could find copies and get them sort of shipped into you, which was great. And now, of course, you can you know bootleg or buy like ePubs and and things like that. So like there are a lot of a lot of great things about it, but I don't yeah I don't think it is possible to be intimate with a PDF the way that we're intimate with books, and that's in part because you know when we read a printed book we use the printed book. I mean we are slowly destroying the printed book, which makes the experience that we have with it, and we want you know it's different every time if we're wearing it slowly away if it preserves what we put in it intentionally or unintentionally. And I, I think it's easier to, to value that than it would be with something that's clean and exactly the same and infinitely reproducible every time.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Andrew Monson. His latest book is Letter to a Future Lover, Marginalia, Rata, Secrets, Inscriptions, and Other Ephemera Found in Libraries. We're talking about the book, libraries, communication, And uh, permanence and impermanence, much in this book, and uh, we'll have more following the break, including Monson tell a very interesting story, a a, uh, inscription, a long inscription found in a copy of Gary Snyder's Turtle Island from one lover to another, detailing their adventures that following the break.
1: Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. One of the most successful movies ever.
2: Iceberg, right ahead.
1: Was born. Out of curiosity. I've said it jokingly, but I think there's a lot
0: of truth to the idea that if I could have actually dived to the Titanic without making the movie, I probably would have done that.
1: (laughs) I'm Guy Raz from Curiosity to Discovery. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning
0: at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Andrew Monson. He teaches at University of Arizona, lives in Tucson, and is author of several books, uh, including uh, Vanishing Point, Not a Memoir. That one was a finalist for National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. Other books include The Available World, Neck Deep, and Other Predicaments, Other Electricities, and Vacation Land. And his latest book is Letter to a Future Lover. Subtitle tells you what it's about: marginalia, errata, secrets, inscriptions, and other ephemera found in libraries. And uh, it's originally published by uh, Andrew Monson, writing in response to the books he was responding to, and then publishing those, quote unquote, back into those books. But it's available for us uh, through uh, Grey Wolf Press. You can reach us by email to upraccess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Uh, so uh, I want to have you uh, tell this story. This is this is just fascinating, uh, Andrew Monson. You uh, came across a copy of Gary Snyder's Turtle Island, and and what did you find?
1: Yeah, this is one of my one of the f- favorite things by far that I've ever found in a book. And this was about maybe maybe ten years ago. I mean, before I was really thinking about this book as a project. I came across this book at a place called Casa de los Ninos, which is a a thrift store. And one of the things that I've, you know, I mean, I was thinking about libraries in like a wider, a wider way of thinking about it. But I mean, a thrift store is a kind of library. I mean, most thrift stores have books. um, And I always go through the books because I have this fondness for old dictionaries and books with diagrams and so on. So, and I always look at all the poetry. Um, So one of the books I picked up was Gary Snyder's book, Turtle Island. And when I popped it open... The first thing I found it has about a four-page long inscription written in it, um, and it's written from this woman to this man. Uh, and I'll just I'll just read like the first uh, the first sentence of the of the inscription to give you a sense of this. You were my birthday present. You came to the door. No one else was home. You said, "Let's celebrate." We dropped acid and went to the friend with the nocturnal monkey-like animal and made love for hours. And it goes on, uh, you know, I mean, this, like, sort of, like, rambling, beautiful, kind of insane uh, inscription. She, she's writing to this guy that they had this experience with. And it's on the occasion of, you know, they had this, you know, this, I guess, this weekend or so. Then they've, then they, you know, they just, they broke up. never saw each other again until 20 years later. They did it again. Um, and this is a sort of on the occasion of the end of that. And so she writes, she's writing to him in this book, in this profoundly intimate and emotional and beautiful and vulnerable way. And the copy I found is, of course, at a thrift store. So it had been discarded, or possibly, you know, he died. And there's a lot of ways this could have happened, or maybe it was never sent. And that really got me thinking both about, I mean, sort of the book. We were talking about intimacy before, and a book is an intimate space, it's a space for ways. It's a space for us to speak to people we're intimate with, um, and in this case, this this woman opening herself up in a profound way to this man, and then for someone else to find it, you know, ten fifteen years later at a thrift store, was almost unbelievably poignant to me, and I had to write about it and I had to think about like what that meant.
0: Many many different possible stories there.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's the. I mean, that's one of the things that I. You know, I mean, I write fiction too. So one of the ways I sort of started thinking about 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 the things that I found was I I was hard not to kind of narratize some of them and try to imagine how it could have how it could have happened. And the most obvious one is, of course, you know, she gave it to him, and he and he you know he didn't care. He thought it was crazy. He just gave it up. It was too much. The other one is the guy died. Maybe and you know all the books were sort of offloaded to the thrift store. And there's, there's this great story that I love about um, the writer David Markson, who wrote on um, Wittgenstein's Mistress and a bunch of other books. And he was a lifelong like, book annotator and a you know, really, really brilliant guy. And after he died, his books just, they were all sold to the bookstore, The Strand in New York. And there would be reports of people that would just go through the bookstore trying to find his copies of books so they could read his marginalia. Um, and so then there's a couple of websites that collected as many of those as they could. So, I, I mean, it's certainly the case that, you know, some people kind of like hunt these things down. But in this case, I'm, I would bet that, I, you know, I, I bet that she wrote to him and he wasn't interested anymore or didn't know what to do to respond and so gave it up. And that sort of sets off this kind of like a rhapsodic feeling in me. Like, I mean, that's I wanted to salute this woman for even though the effect of this is it got, you know, chucked in the goodwill pile. um, Still, I think that was, I think it was a powerful move. I was really moved by it when I found it. And I was moved then to sort of write back and to think about the other things that sort of we write and find in books. Uh,
0: This is is interesting, your response, um, your physical, you know, your emotional response you've talked about. But as we talked about before, you, you, the original publication of these essays, so you, r- you write an essay in response to this, and then you publish it, so-called, yep. back into the book. And yep. then what are you hoping uh, the next borrower of that book will – I guess they'll they'll have the marginalia originally available to them, then they'll have your essay as well. Yeah,
1: my, and yeah, my hope is mm- – my real hope is that well, I guess I hope for a lot of things, but I hope for one is for connection, just some sense of recognition. Someone finds this thing in a book and they sort of see what it is, and maybe they're confused by it, but they they think about it and then they're like oh you're, you know you're speaking my language like we are we are book readers together, we can both kind of talk about the same thing. but what I really love for people to do if they were to find one of these, or I mean you know if you read the book and you, and you, and you interested in the project or the practice of doing this, is to take up their own practice of writing things in books, of speaking back to books, of writing to other, you know, other re- future readers in books, and of placing them in libraries. And of like, you know, I, I like this book also to sort of be an opportunity to think about like, you know, what the library is and what it can be, and why they're so important, you know, in these days of like budget austerity and so on Um, all your libraries continue to be the lifeblood of the culture. So my hope is that people will, you know, if you were to find one of these, you'd be like, well, that's crazy or it's cool. And that gives you the idea of writing something, not necessarily to another reader, maybe to yourself in 20 years um, or yourself next year or the person that you're sharing this book with, your wife or your husband, perhaps. Uh, You know, like write write a note. Uh, The hope is that then you can use the book, and the library, sort of loosely thought about it, as a way of communicating, because it is that too. And not just for writers, but for readers too. Hmm.
0: And, and as you say, that it might be to your future self. Uh, I've had that experience where I've, you know, a little yeah. note I stuck in a book, I, I bring it out again, or marginalia, and then I, I'm interested to remember my past self.
1: Yeah, that, I, I think that's just such a fantastic experience. I mean, it's usually, at least for me, humiliating. Just because I'm, we, uh, you know, I always think I'm really smart. And then I read the, read the things that I wrote in the sides of books. You know, sometimes I just didn't understand. Uh, and, and anyone knows this. this is another reason, like, why, you know, we participate in books. Is that you read you read a novel and you read it ten years later and it's a totally different novel to you because maybe all of a sudden you actually have some real life experience with infidelity um, or you you know you've just grown older and you sort of understand more about like what it is to sort of be alive. So usually when I find my old my old notes, and I just they're kind of cringy, but at the same time I don't know it's still it's still great to sort of revisit that person who I've oftentimes basically forgot about and you have to. And I end up sort of approaching him as this, like, alien version of myself.
0: Yeah, a related topic here, you uh, you write uh, about our, our compulsion, I think I think we have it, I agree with you, uh, to make mm-hmm. lists. I guess it's mm-hmm. part of how we make order, uh, sense of the world. And you, uh, you talk about various lists that you've come upon, you know, lists of books that people have read. You talk about your wife's... Uh, list of books and she she uh, you know the she keeps the early books on the list she hasn't erased them crossed them off even though it, you know could be embarrassing
1: yeah yes yeah, i mean and she you know she's the daughter of an engineer um which i hadn't really put together kind of until i was looking at i knew she had this this it just uh, I, she got a couple notebooks and just in order of every book she'd ever read since she was about i think 14 or so she and she has them in just in a notebook that she's like kept. I guess people use Goodreads and stuff like that for uh, for this now, but there's you know there's nothing that beats the old. I, and i never i never looked at it. I mean I, ne- I knew that she had it because she would occasionally finish a book and then write it down. And I, I you know I knew more or less which books were sort of her favorites. And we talk a lot about books because she was also a librarian for a while, um, which is probably part of my you know sort of like infatuation with libraries and librarians right there. Um, but, and I ended up just looking at her, looking at this list one time and opening it up, and I was just amazed by it. Uh, I mean, you can see, you know, it's in her handwriting, which means more than if it was just kind of typed uh, in like a Word document or something like that, because you can read more of it. But it was just, yeah, it's just in order. And you, and I found myself wondering, like, how she got from you know book one to book two. Like, how did you get from this R.L. Stein novel to like an Alex Garland novel, and how did that come out of Robert Hellinga's novel, *The Sixteen Pleasures*, which is a good novel? And when I saw that in particular, I was like, oh, Robert Hellinga. He was one of my teachers um, in, in my second year of college because he taught at Knox College, which is where I went to school. And so that you know, of course, I had to ask her about that because we'd never talked about the Sixteen Pleasures, and I'd never known that she'd. Written, you know that she that she'd read it, and then, but you know uh, that that's like a nice literary novel, kind of highfalutin. And then the next one is Superstitions by R. L. Stein, and so there's no shame whatsoever in this list. There's no room for it. It's just just a history of the things that she loved. And I found myself really curious about how she got from one to another. And you know, most cases she doesn't really remember now, but some cases she really did.
0: Hmm. This this does reveal a lot about us, doesn't it? There's a short passage in your. Uh... Uh, your essay called "Rhizome." You talk about the, these lists. You say, "Dear Librarian, it must be difficult for you not to want to slip into a favorite patron's reading history." For me, the temptation would be great to snoop, to open up our reading lives. These things we might keep even from those we love. What do you make of us? You're you're addressing this to dear Librarian.
1: Yeah, and, and that's something that I mean. I'm you know I'm a writer, so I'm sort of I guess inevitably a snooper hence you know when i hosted for a couple house at for a couple of friends of mine i had to go to, through their library immediately um but I, I you know i'm sure there are some kind of safeguards you're not supposed to be able to do that or like maybe an ethical code for librarians and i should ask cuz i'd i'd be curious to know but that would be such a strong impulse for me if i was a librarian mm-hmm. to want to know i mean and that's why i love those due date cards cuz you could sort of see at least you could see some information but the kinds of things that we check out from a library, the kinds of things that we read, there is personal, maybe more personal than our browser histories. And I'm working on this novel now that has this um, has a libra- has a librarian as a character, um, and a defacer character too. Um, and of course, like that is one of the that's one of the sort of prime things of the plot is that this librarian is snooping on her husband's reading history in order to sort of find out more about his secret life
0: let's take another break when we come back uh, we'll talk more about libraries Um, and uh, you reference uh, some very interesting libraries Uh, a library that abandoned the Dewey Decimal System a library that abandoned books this happened in Tucson we'll talk about that and uh, there's a a link on your website by the way very interesting website otherelectricities.com which linked me over to the water library in Iceland talk about the purpose of libraries and some very interesting libraries you've run across and more about a book and marginalia with Ander Monson following the break.
1: My father believed any man that needed a vacation should get a different job. For him, those 110 acres was the whole world. He needed nothing else. Hi, this is Dave
2: Isay, founder of the Public Radio Oral History Project, StoryCorps. Remember an important person in your life when our mobile recording booth comes to town. Join us in July at
0: the Uanta County Library in Vernal. Utah Public Radio will begin taking reservations on
2: June 18th. Details at upr.org.
1: Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation from March of this year. You can still participate online on our Facebook, Utah Public Radio, or Twitter at Utah Public Radio, or by email at upraccess@gmail.com at gmail.com
0: thanks for listening to Axis utah i'm tom williams my guest for the hour is Andrew monson he teaches at university of arizona we're reaching him in uh, tucson and his uh, newest book is letter to a future lover marginalia errata secrets inscriptions and other ephemera found in libraries and in the essays in this collection Andrew Monson reflects on the human need to catalog, preserve, and annotate the private and public pro- pleasures of reading, the nature of libraries, and how the self can be formed through reading and writing. We'd uh, love to hear from you. You can reach us at upraccess@gmail.com, at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. And we are on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. Another uh, 10 minutes or so left with uh, Andrew Monson. Uh, so I, I want to talk a bit about the library. And uh, you talk about libraries you've been in. Of course, you spent a lot of time in the University of Arizona library. And, but you mentioned uh, some libraries, I guess, that you had, have, have had experience with. Let me start with the, <laughs> the most interesting, flabbergasting one, uh, a, uh, a, a library, apparently this is in Tucson, that tried to go bookless.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, this is, it's a trend, I mean, because libraries want to provide services that people are actually going to use. So one of the, um, one of the Pima County Public Libraries, this is maybe, I want to say about eight or nine years ago, decided that they were going to get rid of all their books. And, well, I mean, all their print books, they were going to still have digital books. And they, and, I, and, you know, and they, they, of course, they tried this, but there was a huge uprising by the patrons, and they were sort of forced to back down from this idea and I found out about this partially because I was, I don't know, I ran across a mention or I talked to somebody who directed me to, there, there, and there is a library in San Antonio, which is entirely bookless. It is all digital. That is all they have is computers and pads, iPads, and other kinds of like sort of, you know, digital reading implements. Um, and it's, you know, it's been very popular, especially with, you know, when you're trying to connect with like younger patrons who are increasingly interested in digital technologies, I mean, never mind that the book is also a technology. And when we say technology, usually we mean digital, but you know, typewriters of technology, the book is a technology that's been with us for a thousand years and it's still going strong. And as the Amazon ad puts it, it still reads great in sunlight. You don't need, you know, it doesn't need to be plugged in. Mm. Books still work fine. Don't need new operating systems. Any, anyhow. Um, but there are libraries that have gone all digital, and they're you know, more, probably more service and database operated. But there's one of them in San Antonio, which I would love to go to, and just see like, what the, that experience would be like. Because to me, that is anathema to my, to my way of being in libraries. Like, I want to be surrounded by books. At the same time, I, would, you know, I, I understand that I mean, libraries aren't just, as I said, they're not just museums for dead books. They're living places where people go to connect um, with other people. And there's actually a library, I think it's in the East Coast, where you can check out people, to, and you can just ask them questions. It's like a human library, human lending library. Um, people volunteer their time. You know, maybe you're like a Vietnam War vet. And then you could check them out and just buy them a cup of coffee and talk to them, which I also thought was just a really fascinating idea.
0: So this idea of connection, uh, the, the libraries are not just, you know, museums, a place where you go to connect. But do you need physical books for that?
1: You know, I don't think you do. Um, I I think the digital library is a fine idea because in part, you know, in part, you know, you go to meet other people. Libraries uh, serve a lot of populations with hosting meeting spaces, hosting study spaces, putting people in connection with each other online. Um, So I, I don't think you do. Having said that, I think having some physical thing is it's another way of connecting. It's another way of that we sort of speak to each other through time. There's this really this quote that I like um, by Edward Hoagland, who's an essayist, and he was and it's in it's from 1997 or so in one of his essays, and he writes that an essay is a kind of public letter, like a way of speaking with other writers in a public way, and I think of that, I mean I think of the book in the same way. So to me, the book is the important nexus for connection not the only one. I mean, certainly the internet has provided like a lot of people with a lot of opportunity for connection to other people and to a lot of information too. So I mean, I, you know, I, I don't decry it, but I personally wouldn't use a library that is just digital. I don't see the point of it, at least for my personal use of libraries.
0: What if you talk to me about uh, this kind of kind of a poignant thing, uh, Biosphere 2, and uh, there's the library stack, no books now,
1: I yeah. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if people of a certain age remember the biosphere too, which is actually in Tucson, interestingly enough. Um, and it's that geodesic dome, this it's kind of like a bunch of geodesic domes, um, in which what mid eighties, late eighties, I you know, I was still in school. So my school was like really obsessed with following this as a sort of teaching tool in which they had their team of biospherians who would, who would be locked into the biosphere, the self-sustaining, um, the self-sustaining atmosphere with to girl, all their own food, all that kind of thing for two years. Um, and it was, it was a little bit, a little bit of a flaky project. It was like kind of mostly science and then some pseudoscience. And it's really fascinating to read about. So when I moved down to Tucson, the first thing that I wanted to go to was go see the biosphere and I was, and well, biosphere too. The biosphere, as they explain, is the world that we live in. so this is the biosphere too. So you go up and you, know, you can tour it. And it's totally worth the time. I mean, really, really kind of science nerdy to go, go through, you know, go through the tunnels and go from, you know, go from one biome to another biome. But you know, you're, I started thinking like, well, you're going to be locked in there for two years. Like, what, what are the libraries like? Uh, like well, you know, what do you bring with you? Um, and so, I finally got access to the room where the library used to be, which is up in the, the observation tower another kind of geodesic dome that sort of powers over the rest of the um, the rest of the biosphere and there's still shelves but there was no books the books had moved out long ago and again I, I found that sort of poignant and sad and so as it was my practice I would go around and try to find whatever I could to sort of speak to but mostly what I could speak to there was absence and I found one little card that was sort of written up there for some student interns um, and just an instruction to them. So I sort of took that and wrote about that. But as part of this, then I, I talked to one of the archivists who who was sort of working with the bio-experience kind of ask what books were on their shelves. And maybe predictably, you know, there was a lot of sci-fi. I was looking for a photograph that they have or like a catalog, but they don't have that anymore. If they do, it's just really buried and hard to find. Um and so, they, I mean, you know, they had mostly sort of like classics, a lot of Shakespeare and a lot of Philip K. Dick, which makes mm-hmm. some sense mm-hmm. if you're involved in this kind of future project.
0: And and cookbooks, apparently. They had some cookbooks.
1: Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. of course, they had to make all their own food. <laughs> had to make the food. That's um, right. And yeah. they still have that. They do have – you can still see the little stack that's in the Biosphere kitchen. Um, and, again, you can't see that officially on the tour. You can kind of walk by it. My. Inclination is to kind of cross the velvet rope to see more <laughs> as soon as I can and get closer. But you know, they had—they've got about a, about maybe fifteen or sixteen cookbooks still there that in you know show you how to like you know, make a lot of things with the yams and so forth.
0: Uh, I wonder. We just have about five minutes left. I wonder if I could have you read the first paragraph in uh, disambiguation. This is page sixty-five in the, in sure. the bound the yeah, bound I'll book. Sure. up here? Um, got it. It takes us back to what we're talking about—the the beginning with kind of what you're. What you're going? At least your hope, right? In, uh, yeah, your hope so, in, a, in a world with uh, continuing with physical books.
1: Yes, disambiguation. This note's hope is manifest in this: that in reading and in writing letters halfway to forever, we can multiply ourselves, manifold of many folds, men with folded cloaks, folds of many sheep, many folds made miniature of pewter, about a half inch high a piece. to scale, figurines for gaming use, in shearing dreams, in the sort of dreams you share with a lover if you want to flatter them with the extent of your strangeness. I hereby hope that we might publish ourselves into a future either, and so I am doing it. Dear silence, dear future, a future filled with deer clotting upper Michigan roads so deep you have to nudge them gently with your car or they won't move and you won't move an inch. And this is before the paralyzing snow. Either the future will come or it will not. Either I will be there or I will not. No way to know. At least I will be here. So if here is there, if all of this is not discarded or eroded or otherwise destroyed, then I will be your guest as a ghost. Hmm.
0: Now, do you think, you know, you fast forward... 200 years, 300 years, we, we still have the physical book, still have marginalia, still have this form of intimate communication?
1: Yes, no doubt in my mind. Um, you know, I mean, I think we're going to have digital stuff too, but the the book is a, the book is a very, very durable technology, um, and especially now in the era of, you know, of digital printing and print-on-demand and things like that, th- these things are going to last. They're meant to last. They're made to last in a way that the uh, like say for instance um, I'm the president of the Tucson Poetry Festival down here in Tucson and we were at our meeting a couple of weeks ago someone mentioned that we still had all our files on zip disk from you know from 1995 and they're unreadable like we can't get to those files we can't get to all the documents we had in there i mean you, you guess you could if, if you find someone with the zip disk drive and i had one of those but i don't have that anymore So, I mean, the digital technologies, though a lot of them, a lot of them are great in many ways. Like they do either they lock you into a system that you have to keep paying in order to access, uh, um, you know, with Amazon, for instance, um, or with something like Spotify in terms of digital music. So, as soon as you don't have connection to the to the systems that you're paying to use, you will not be able to read the things or listen to the things anymore. Often, often is the case, or they'll be on. You know, in a format that's unreadable or unaccessible. Um, as you find out, if you look at, say, something like the Learning Games Initiative Research Archive, this video game library at the University of Arizona, it's really, really difficult to be able to read things that were produced digitally, sometimes even 10 years ago, or much less 20 years ago or 30 years ago, when you had you know, five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy disks. Good luck reading anything on those now, If, they're, if those techno- if the disks are even... Still not like you know do, not eroded too much to read. You're not you not gonna be able to find a way to read them for most people. Um, so I, whereas you know that book Pierce Butler's Libraries in Wartime, 1945, not checked out for 68 years, still perfectly readable. I find it. I'm moved by it. It's just an immediate sort of reaction. But I think you know, we're gonna have both of them. But books are not going anywhere.
0: No, the, the bound edition of Letter to a Future Lover was not your first choice, of course, but uh, do you do you imagine, I'm imagining right now that, you know, in the you know, fast-forward decade or two, and uh, you or, or someone else finds a copy of this book in the library with, with marginalia.
1: Oh, um, yeah, I, I would love that. I mean, you know, the risk of that is, of course, that it's marginalia telling you you're an idiot um, <laughs> right. and speaking back. But, you know, I mean, people have the right to do that with their, you know, with their books. I mean, that's what the margins are for. I mean, they're there for us to fill, not just to kind of like hold our funds or whatever. I, so I would absolutely love that. And my hope is that this will be, you know, I mean, it's not going to inspire like every single person in America to go to a library, but if it gets a couple people to think a different way about a library and about how they might speak to others through libraries and through books, I, would, I think that's complete success from my perspective. And I would love to run into one of those sometime in the future. You know, 40 years and see someone bring a you know, mark up in the margin, like, you know, so moved, even by, you know, even if they're calling me an idiot, they were moved enough to call me an idiot and to write in the book. And that means something.
0: The book is Letter to a Future Lover. The uh, author's is Ander Monson. He's joined us for the hour. A pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: And uh, hope you join us tomorrow for AXIS Utah. Thanks for listening today.
2: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah public radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Hello, this is Jim Goodwin. In a minute, I've got a critter quiz for you. But first, a word about the huge importance of riparian areas in semi-arid Utah, the second driest state in the Union. Utah State's Extension Service calls riparian zones the green ribbon of life alongside its dream. They are shadier, cooler, and moister than adjacent environments. And with a diverse mixture of plants and animals, our few riparian corridors are heavily used by wildlife for food, rest, and shelter. Okay, now for our critter quiz. What's the largest rodent in North America? Here's a hint, they can be up to four feet long and weigh 40 to 60 pounds. Did that do it? No? All right, this clue will. They spend much of their life in water. They have a beautiful brown coat, a broad, flat, hairless tail, and big orange buck teeth that continually grow, which is why they chew and chew and chew. Good, you've got it. It's the North American beaver, or as Utah environmental author Chip Ward calls them, the flat-tail climate hero for the restoration of damaged watersheds. Beaver are amazing aquatic engineers, second only to humans in their ability to manipulate their environment. In our nation's history, they've played a big role in literally shaping our western landscape. Joe Wheaton, Utah State wildlife and beaver expert, rightly calls the work of the beaver cheap and cheerful restoration of our heat-stressed watersheds. In the wild, these mostly nocturnal animals normally live five to ten years. Fortunately, they are rarely killed for their pelts these days. Beaver are usually monogamous they will produce up to 10 babies. The young kits will stay home until they are two or so before they take off on their own. Beaver are master aquatic builders, the original geoengineers. They build dams to flood areas for protection from predators, for access to their food supply, and to provide safe underwater entrances to their dens. Their dams create beautiful riparian habitat for many other animals, birds, fish, amphibians, insects, and plants. The flooded areas slow the flow of water and sediment downstream and raise the area water table. Aspen, cottonwood, willow, and dogwood are their preferred tree. Those trees regenerate quickly after beaver topple them. When their ponds freeze over, beaver jam smaller branches into the mud at the bottom of the pond for food storage. Beaver dams can be five to 10 feet high and 150 feet across. They are constructed with branches, stones, and plants and plastered together with mud. Over 1,200 beaver dams have been counted in northern Utah's Bear River Mountains alone. The world's largest beaver dam in Canada is 2,789 feet in length. That's more than nine football fields. Yes, sometimes beaver can be a nuisance to human property and activities. Often, learning to live with beaver and the many benefits they can bring can be a solution. There are simple time-tested ways to prevent flooding. But if nothing works, they can be live trapped and moved to another area. There's no need to shoot them. I'm Jim Goodwin for Wild About Utah. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, hd one Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.